Welcome to Unfiltered, our newest program in our weekly Fixing Healthcare podcast series. Joining us each month will be Dr. Zubin Damania, known to many as ZDog MD. For 25 minutes, he and Robbie will engage in unscripted and hard-hitting conversation about art, politics, entertainment, and much more. As nationally recognized physicians and healthcare policy experts, they'll apply the lessons they extract to medical practice. I'll then pose a question for the two of them as a patient based on what I've heard. Robbie, why don't you kick it off? Zubin, welcome back to the Fixing Healthcare Show. Dang, Robbie, I'm ready to get unfiltered. I don't know what that means, okay. but we're going to do it. Let's begin in a place you love, Broadway. You know, I had the chance to see a remarkable show called The Layman Trilogy. It traced the history of the Layman brothers when the first generation came to the U.S., middle of the 19th century, and then it ended at the financial collapse in the first part of the 21st. What was most interesting was the continual clash of generation. Three brothers began in the South manufacturing clothes from cotton, but the next generation, it realized that it was more profitable to become transporters of cotton from the South to the industrialized North. Then the next generation recognizes it's more profitable to be the financiers of industry and they start banking. Then the next generation says, why not expand to all businesses? And they create the stock exchange or contribute to its founding. And finally, the company, no longer at this point led by the family, introduces an array of financial products that ultimately proved to be Lehman's downfall. What was so powerful to me was watching this inevitable clash, each generation with the one that follows, one generation holding on to power, the other one coming of age, embracing change, and rejecting the values of their parents. I'd like to start by hearing your thoughts on this issue of the generations battling, whether in society overall or how it plays out in medical practice. What are your thoughts, Zubin? Man, you know, I just, I love generational conflict because it's, it's first of all, it's entertaining. Second of all, it is an in indicator of the natural evolutionary process of everything. Like the entire universe unfolds this way. So you have, you have generation one, let's call them the boomers, for example, who did things a certain way. They were actually the rebels of their time. They pushed the envelope uh, in, in, you know, in the sixties, the emergence of this sort of cultural revolution and the plurality and multiculturalism and postmodernism and all of that. They were the leading edge of that evolutionary chain. And then the generation that followed kind of emerged and each of them takes it takes a tact of first kind of learning what the previous generation kind of did and then disidentifying from it saying oh you know this has this this many problems and I, I don't really like this and this is not how I want to live and then trying to grab a foothold in something new and saying okay well no this is what we are and identifying with that and I think where that becomes healthy is where you integrate what the previous generation was able to do and actually say yeah that was necessary but it's partial we need to keep striving for whatever truth is but if you don't integrate it if you just reject it and you never integrate it then you're in a in a in a difficult situation then you have this kind of conflict now I think some of that's inevitable but some of it isn't and as as I started growing older in medicine and uh, having house staff, you could watch this play out. You know, first you have me, Gen X, and then you start having millennials and you see a kind of a contrast in styles and expectations in um, sort of work ethic in, in the sense of 
like the work, it's not that the work ethic isn't there. It's just, it's a different balance of what they want. They're quite clear of saying, I actually want to learn. Um, whereas we were like, well, whatever we need to do, we'll do to kind of power through. And, and so this kind of conflict to me is it's fascinating. I think it's necessary to some degree, but understanding it allows us to actually transcend to a more integrative evolutionary approach to generational kind of thinking. One of the things that's fascinating to me is how the events of the time so shape a group of individuals. You know, as you mentioned, you have the boomers, they watch a man land on the moon and President Kennedy talking about uh, getting to space in less than a decade. Anything's possible. And Gen X, this is the latchkey generation. They watch the breakup of the family. Uh, I'm not so sure anymore that this hard pushing is the best thing for people. Gen Y comes along and there's 9-11, the world, it could collapse at any moment. And then Gen Z, the people who are, who grew up during the 2008 recession, now they're moving back to look a lot more than the boomers. You know, my sense is that the underlying motivation of people doesn't change. It's not that one generation is more, purpose-driven or mission-focused. No, it's how it is presented out. Is it going to be in the external world? Is it gonna be in the family? Is it gonna be an accomplishment? Is it gonna be the individual? And I, I fear a little bit, and this is overall, but medicine in particular, that we personalize it in a negative way. My approach is better rather than understanding how as humans, we're all shaped by what's around us. What's your sense? Uh, you know, it is, it's like every disease is biopsychosocial. It has biomedical component, it has psychological component, it has social and technological components and environmental components. Everything in ge in generational thinking is exactly that. So, you know, like for example, for, for me, Gen X, you know, we were shaped by, you know, our, our memories are the Challenger disaster and the 80s. And like you said, the, the sort of slow decline of family, the culture wars, these kind of things kind of shaped us and destabilized us to some degree. But the, I, I think that that interaction with the system, the environment, the, the techno-economic structure in healthcare, it becomes really fascinating because you have Gen Z now and Gen Y that have a very different upbringing than we did. You know, they are digital natives. They they started with a iPhone in their hand, the Gen Zers, and they're entering a system where we have fax machines still, we have pagers still, we have um, this archaic set of payment models and CPT codes and all this stuff. And they look at it and they just they cannot understand why this exists. And that pushback that they might feel or might exhibit can be interpreted through the older generation's lens as you're just not paying your dues. You don't understand this is how we've done it. And we got stuck with this crap and you should too. But that's not, I don't think that's the right way to look at it. What we have to do is understand that both the techno-economic structures of healthcare and everything and society have to adjust and vibrate along with the, the generation that's coming into being, that's going to be the predominance of the workforce and all that. And in, instead of like lang, you know, us, us, you know, like a lot of Gen X attendings now are just, oh my gosh, these millennials and these Gen Zers, they're just, they're impossible to deal with. It's like, I don't think that's the right way to look at it at all. Nor is it for a Gen Z or a, it's usually millennials looking at boomers going, yeah, okay, boomer, like you guys don't, you, you guys wrecked everything. You guys don't even know what you're doing. Like, let us handle this. That's the wrong way to look at it too. I'm just so excited. I have to tell you about Gen Z. You know, if I were back in college, I'd study Mandarin because I'd see that as what the future world's gonna be rather than what is than what, what was in the past. 
you know, I'd be really interested in this narrowing of the line between humans and robots and seeing a world in which we actually will interact with these uh, technologically created creatures that biologically don't exist and yet in so many psychosocial ways do. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting that I, I somehow have this view of the future rather than the view of the present and the past. I think it's true for you too, Zubin. Am I right? Yeah, you know, this merging of, so, so you cannot separate our tools and toys and technologies from us. We are intertwined with that. And it's a kind, I recently had a guy named Daniel Schmachtenberger on my show and we talked about this, that, that technology and society, those, those, those structures feed back on the human mind. It, they feed back on us in ways that evolve us that are beyond our DNA, actually, although some of it is our DNA methylation and these sort of, you know, Lamarckian effects uh, on our DNA. But the truth is, even beyond that, we are absolutely changed by these structures. So we ought to actually approach the future with a kind of um, a mix of kind of techno optimism, like let's design systems that actually encourage the kind of outcomes that we want as a people, which right now we haven't done with, with social media. We haven't done that. We've just, we've encouraged fear of missing out. We've encouraged bad body image. We've encouraged uh, division and polarity with those structures because they are purely incentivized by money. So we have to change those sort of incentives and structures to, to, to understand what you're saying, right, Robbie, like to actually respect that so that we can create a world that actually is what we want as opposed to what's just going to happen to us. There's no way we can stop the progress. And so I agree with you completely. We should be trying to shape it in the best way possible and recognize that it, some of it is beyond our simple control. Zubin, you are a musical genius. At some point on this show, I'd love to have you sing for people and rap for people. But let me ask you now just for your perspective on the evolution of music in a generational context. Elvis, to hip hop, to heavy metal, to rap. Where are we? What's coming next? What is exciting to you in the musical world? Man, this is a, and I, by the way, I'm a real crappy musician, but the bar in healthcare is quite low. So all I have to do is show up and, 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 you know, wrap over a track and I'm probably okay. But in the real world, I would, I would die instantly. So I, what I think about this is fascinating. It's almost like karma, right? Cause and effect, like everything you do kind of ripples out and has effects on everything else. And it's all a web of interdependency. So Elvis was basing his music on black music and blues and jazz. And, and that evolved into, you know, rock and roll and that evolved into prog rock and that involved into hip hop and you know all these things kind of are interdependent everything is appropriating from everything else. When you talk to a, any good musician, the first thing they'll do is tell you who their influences are. They never say, oh, I just made this stuff up from scratch. No, they go, no, no, I listen to this, I listen to that, I listen to this. And they process it through their unconscious and out it comes. They open a hole in the universe, they take all this input and out comes something completely novel that's actually made of these building blocks. So music is like that. So that's why like, it's funny, as I get older, Robbie, I listen to new music and I go, God, this sounds just like this, this sounds just like this, this sounds just like like this because you start to pick out that karmic influence from all the generations before because you have the the age and perspective to see it whereas i think young people they, they're just like this is my music this is brand new this has never happened and as they get older they start to put it into the context of this evolutionary chain of music that's beautiful i mean it's it's like goes back to the beginning of art you know the earliest gregorian chanting and before that cave singing and all that it all is this uninterrupted line 
as far as I see it. I read that unless you're exposed to new music early in your life, you're never going to be able to embrace it, that there's a cerebral, neurobiological way that music gets incorporated into your brain, and yet you seem to keep evolving. I mean, I think the Super Bowl halftime show was one of your most favorite musical <laughs> events. Uh, is, that, is this your experience, or are you able to keep taking in the newest forms of music and finding value inside them? It's it's a real challenge. I think that this this window to novelty starts to close in our 30s. There's been some data around that that if we're not exposed to something new before we start hitting our 30s, that that novelty window closes and we're more resistant. And some of it may just be biological conditioning. Some of it may be you know some other effects. But my experience is like musicians who are the most open minded. They they already emotionally uh, personality wise they're born with a set of tools, high openness to experience you know these kind of personality traits that allow them to be open to different things. And they'll often say, oh, my parents played all kinds of music in the house, or my father was a musician or something like that. And that often opened their, it's like learning, like you said, you learn Mandarin. Like if you learn a bunch of languages before you're 10, they're really easy to learn. Once once you get older, the window of plasticity starts to close. It doesn't close entirely, never, it never does, but it, but it does make it harder. And I think the same is true with music. So some of the best musicians are the ones that had the most musical exposure when they were young. You know, for me, watching that Super Bowl show was like a take back to 1993. And and I was just, I was elated as a generational thing, as Gen X going, oh, that was our music. That was when I was in college. That's when we were, you know, this was the edgiest, craziest music. And now it seems like classic rock. Like it's so crazy tame. And to watch them do it in, in the Super Bowl and really crush it, it was just a lot of fun, you know, really kind of elating to see. I've heard that 50% of all music is about love, either the unrequited love, the fulfilled love, the early love, the late love, the good love, the bad love. Does the music shape our view of relationships or is that something again that we should be leading and directing? Ooh, what a lovely question. Man, I, I haven't thought about this enough, but I'd say this, that uh, <laughs> I, I, it's an epiphenomenon of our relationships and it also does shape our relationships. And in some ways it's unhealthy because the concepts of romantic love often espoused in music are reductionist and a little cliche and they don't take into account the broad breadth of how humans are. So in a way, romantic love is so interesting to begin with because you can contrast it with in, in a meditative experience or a spiritual context, unconditional love, where you feel absolute acceptance unconditionally for all beings, where, you know, it is, we're all one thing. And that kind of love feels very different than romantic love, which is in many ways kind of conditional and kind of dependent and, and is, 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 is dualistic in the sense that it has its highs and then it has its very much lows, right? So music captures that because music is the emotional human state in a crystallized vibratory form. You know, that, that, it, that's why it triggers emotions, but it also is created by emotions in a way. So it's, it's mutually in, in, interdependent in my mind. I'm going to ask you a question that I would hesitate to ask to almost anyone else, but I'm very interested slash really concerned about racism in medicine. And I was at a karaoke club, believe it or not, um, about two weeks ago, and a lot of the songs were rap songs. And if they had come 
out of individuals who were white, uh, they would have been very offensive, I believe. But of course, the singers were uh, black in this particular case. How do you view the language sitting in rap today that sits on this boundary around racism? Oh, that's interesting because you're talking about the N-word, which is used profusely, I think, in um, rap music. And it is, it's not a word that, say, a Caucasian person or me as an Indian American can can use. It's just, it's not a word that I think um, we can use. Now, in the music, it's interesting because it is in cadence, in incisiveness, in context of the experience of that community in the rap, it is the perfect word in many ways. And so that's the, that's the tension there. Uh, and, and, and it makes, that's art. Art is that kind of tension, the tension between society, between these social structures, between the weight of history and between that performance in the present moment, right? So I, I, I think it's, it's, there's no single answer to this. And if you ask 20 people, they'll all tell you different things depending on their background, their race, their own lived experience. You know, I recently had a, a doc named Ian Tong on my show who is um, the chief medical officer of a company called Included Health. And he's written extensively on race and medicine. He's uh, a black physician. And, and he talked quite you know, powerfully about his own experience. And I think what we have to do is listen to these perspectives and see how we can incorporate change in, in a systemic way. But at the same time, we have to be careful about the reverse where we're starting to marge, you know, we're starting to attack and marginalize, say, Caucasian people based on their race. Like we're just assuming you're a racist, we're assuming this. And, and, and it, it, it just becomes this very self-fulfilling prophecy and, and a big mess. So I think just being open and authentic and honest in our conversations is, is 90% of the battle and trying to really inhabit the other person's lived experience and position as an empathic sort of exercise is, is crucial. When I was on your incredible podcast, I think it's the best one in all of healthcare, uh, congratulations <laughs> on it. I'll, I'll give you that honor, Robbie, actually. My podcast kind of sucks for healthcare. Uh, you asked me a question about racism. We talked about the fact that early in the pandemic, that the uh, when there was a shortage of testing kits, that physicians under-tested black patients, that when two patients came to the ER with the same symptoms, one a white patient, one a black patient, the likelihood was that the white patient got tested twice as often. And we talked about the nature of implicit bias, that it's biological, most likely, dating back 20,000 years, we were cave people, someone shows up at the door to the cave, we have a nanosecond to decide whether it's someone we should welcome in and feed or throw a spear at because they're about coming to kill us, and that that biological piece isn't an excuse for racism, and most importantly, that not recognizing it and not putting in place systems to be able to address it and prevent it, that was racism. And I see that in medicine today. I see artificial intelligence as possibly being able to say, you know, Zubin, when you take care of this patient, usually you prescribe X dose of medication. This patient, you're prescribing half of the pain medication, even though the pain is likely the same. Do you want to reconsider? And I don't see medicine either acknowledging it, I mean, you can find it in the literature, but acknowledging it in how it's changing. I don't see residency building into place. I don't see technology coming in. I'm concerned. And we're seeing it in the data, women's mortality who are black women in labor. We're seeing this problem continue and actually become worse on what I've seen recently. Your thoughts on how we can best address racism in American medicine today? 
I mean, this is a massive topic. One thing you mentioned about AI is interesting because it's a double-edged sword. If you program that AI is only as good as the information you feed it, and actually it can lead to perpetuating systemic bias if it's fed information that is innately uh, incomplete or biased. And this has been something that's been documented in AI in medicine too. Um, and so I, I, what I think, this is tricky because there are a lot of like sort of, uh, you know, like when, when, when we, when we point a temperature gun at someone's head, when they're coming into a restaurant and we call that COVID screening, that's called hygiene theater, right? It's not, it's not really doing much of anything, but it, but people feel better like by having done it. I think some of the, 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 techniques and things that, that they're doing in medicine are along those lines. They make people feel like, well, we're doing something about race, but it's really not doing anything. And what we really need to do is what you're saying, which is look at our systemic um, structures and see, okay, are these contributing to this situation? And also we have to be careful about re reductionist um, diagnoses of you know, what's going on, because sometimes we're missing a, a broader problem that is contributing to an outcome, right? Because we want equality of opportunity everywhere we can. And so any any way we can knock down barriers to that um, equality of opportunity, we need to look at systems that do that. But it's hard, man. It's really hard. And people don't even want to talk about it because it makes them uncomfortable. Whereas every time when I would round and we'd have a multiracial team, which was every time, right? I, I would talk about race all the time because I wanted to put it, and by the end, everyone was like, oh yeah, this is our culture, this is what we do. And, you know, even just having an open dialogue and people are afraid, I, you know, people, I, I could get away with it because I'm off white, right? So I, I felt like, oh, I'm just gonna, I, I can say this, I don't feel bad about it. I think a lot of Caucasian people feel bad about doing that. They're nervous about it. And I think we have to, we have to get over that too. And that's gonna take some generations probably. I heard an interesting dialogue between two physicians. Uh, the first one, this is a relative to the issue of change, how fast we can make it. You know, one said Rome wasn't built in a day, and the other one said, but it could have been. <laughs> I like that. Could have, that sounds like Gen Y right there. <laughs> well, just get on, just get on Instagram and take a selfie of you with Rome, and there it is. It exists. It's there in the picture. Ah. Uh, how fast can we and should we evolve the American healthcare system? Oh, man, if I could wave a magic wand, I would just start entirely fresh. And, uh, you know, and, and that includes medical education and that includes, you know, our concept of what well, wellness and health actually mean, because that's a cultural and personal context. And again, biopsychosocial, there's a whole wave of that. So if I could do it, I, I would completely reboot it. So I'm in the camp of like, hey, it could have been built in a day, right? Because in a way, trying to undo these legacy systems is, it's, you know, at some point it just gets to be, you're banging your head against the wall, which we've been doing for quite some time. At the same time, it's very destabilizing to even talk like that. Uh, you know, markets would collapse if we, if we suddenly did that, although we'd get a lot of our GDP back probably. Um, so I'm somewhere in the middle on that. I think we need real disruptive change, but at the same time, we're going to have to work with structures that we have, and we're going to have to work with a legacy population of healthcare professionals that have been conditioned and cultured in a, in a, in a system that is no longer going to exist if we do things right. So I'd like to return one last time to the generational questions. You have a massive following of your podcast. How many people follow your podcast now? Uh, well, on, on Facebook, it's about two and a half million, YouTube, about half a million, Instagram, about half a million. So I'm guessing you have a pretty broad population of generations, ages, etc. 
Did you yeah. see, do you hear, do people respond differently based upon the generations? And if so, how is that? Yeah, actually they do. Uh, and, and each platform has a different age mix. So Instagram is, skews younger, YouTube skews more male and younger, Facebook skews female and older, and they all respond to different, like I can put the same piece out on different platforms and the response may be a viral million hits on one and you know 5,000 meh with some no comments on another. And so different generations do respond to different material quite differently, and it, whether it's a music video from a certain era or whether it's just a topic that um, they're, they're interested in or not interested in, and there are gender differences uh, for sure. So it's a real cross-section of all of healthcare actually are, are following. And so uh, it, some of it depends too on what their profession is. Like nurses respond differently than doctors respond differently than physical therapists respond differently than respiratory therapists. So there's just so much diversity there. It's almost impossible to know, you know, what, uh, what's going on. So you just try to talk about stuff you care about authentically. In the end, my conclusion based upon everything I've just heard from you is that everyone is motivated to make positive changes happen. It happens across generations. It happens across training and backgrounds. And I think that the separations that we have done, personalizing it around your generation is a problem. My generation is right. I think it's standing in the way. And I would encourage you on your show and continuing in our conversation on this show to look at the similarities to find the ways that the motivation is the same, the driver is the same, because as you've said, I have had really wonderful experiences in my medical career, in training residents and working with colleagues, regardless of the particular year they were born. We should understand those influences, but we shouldn't let them stay in the way. That's my view of generations. Closing thoughts by you. I think that's spot on. I think we should embrace these differences as part of the normal evolutionary wave of how humans are and and try to really really put each other put in, put ourselves in each other's shoes so if we can really feel what it's like growing up as I say a gen z uh you can actually feel a lot of love and compassion for their struggle too uh, as well as the opportunities that they have so I, I you know I think we're in a a spot to do that, but I do think that we get calcified as we get older and it's we're more resistant to that kind of thing. Whereas the younger generations, I mean, we ought to just make it a cultural norm that that's how we behave, you know? Z-Dog and Robbie, you guys talked about the generational differences in healthcare. One thing I hear frequently in many industries is that the younger generations are too self-obsessed or self-obsessed, self-righteous, and arguably fragile, especially on social media. Uh, social media is obviously a blessing and a curse. It gives uh, people the ability to share with the masses in a way they've never been before, but also to attack and cancel people for what they believe is wrong things like never before. Um, we see people raising awareness for humanitarian crises all over the globe, but also mobs of people canceling people for things they tweeted or said back when they were in high school. Um, people feel so righteous to band together with people and be part of a cause on social media. I mean, we've seen misinformation spread as well as way, way, way too much censorships on topics that later are proven to be true. What do you both feel is kind of that right mix of being able to speak their mind versus censorship versus kind of how the different generations see and use uh, social media as well as kind of some of the pros and cons about it? Well, uh, I, I, this is like one of the fundamental things we really try to address on our show is this idea of social media as a technological tool that kind of, again, vibrates with each generation differently and that it really does 
hack our limbic system. It's a race to the bottom of the brainstem. We have these hypernormal stimuli in the form of these social media things, along with this uh, weaponized tribalism in the form of likes, dislikes. We almost instantiate these collective hive minds based on individual neurons, which are like, dislike, that's our neurotransmitter in these social networks. And so you have generations now that are being judged on dumb stuff they said when they were 13. Who didn't? If, if you could pull up everything, and I'm sure there's stuff somewhere circulating around that I've said when I was 14, I, I would be done in this climate. I would be, they would eliminate me from the face of the earth. And the truth is that's not okay because th these are neuroplastic children at that age too, right? So they can't be judged on that. We should be able to be our, our authentic selves, but we should also have to, again, deal with the consequences of what we say, but not in a way where the mob comes and cancels you. And look, I've been the victim of cancellation. I've tried to cancel other people. I, I, it, you, it's so seductive on social media that, Jeremy, that you just, we need to change those social media incentives in order to make it a little better. And, and and I think we can absolutely do that. There's much smarter technology out there that can can be used uh, to actually generate consensus and connection as opposed to uh, polarization and cancellation. What I see is technology becomes ever more powerful where they all look at Moore's law doubling every two years. And what you're seeing right now is incredibly powerful technology that can be used for good or bad. Technology isn't a intrinsic force around morality or immorality. It's simply a tool that people apply and societies and civilizations have to figure out how to use it. You can think of it as a nuclear power that can generate the electricity to light the homes without affecting climate across the globe, or you can think about it as a tool to destroy civilization. I think the time has really come for us to ask, how do we want to use this powerful tool? I believe for the best in people, I think we underutilize it in medicine. I think we probably overutilize it as, uh, as Zubin has said, in people's early lives, finding the right balance will be difficult. Everyone wants a simple solution, a clean solution. It doesn't exist. This force will happen, it will grow stronger, and we as humans will have to decide whether we control it or it controls us. Zubin, it's been great. I can't wait for next month. This has been a fascinating view to me of uh, the millennials and the Gen Xs and the boomers and the future Gen Zs, and now the new Gen A that is coming along. Um, the world will be very different to the future. Together, I'm hoping we can make it better. And as I always say at the end of my shows, together we can make American medicine once again the best in the world. Thank you for being our guest today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. If you want more information on healthcare topics, you can visit Robbie's website at robertpearlmd.com. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and, and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Unfiltered, with Dr. Robert Pearl, Jeremy Kaur, and Dr. Zubin Damania. Have a great day.